welcome to Whole Brain Teaching, the podcast. Join your host, Rhonda Arl and Laura Forehand. We want to help you as teachers reach your full potential by keeping you up to date with all the latest and best Whole Brain Teaching strategies. Whole Brain Teaching is a grassroots educational reform movement founded by Coach Chris Biffle, Jay Vanderfin, and Chris Rextad. Whole Brain Teaching's goal is to create peaceful classrooms through orderly fun. To support the podcast, please like and share with other teachers. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. And now, here are Laura and Rhonda. Welcome to Whole Brain Teaching, the podcast. I'm Rhonda Arald, and I'm so glad to be here with my Whole Brain Teaching bestie, Miss Laura. How are you doing today, Laura? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm glad to see your face, and I'm definitely glad to see Coach Chris Biffle's face because we have him back on the podcast today. Um, as you all know, he is a founder of Whole Brain Teaching, and last week, we released a podcast called Five Important Skills for Whole Brain Teaching Instructors. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast yet, we want to encourage you to go back and do so. You don't have to do that in order to listen to this one, but we do want to encourage you to go back and listen to that one because it was full of great information. It's definitely an episode that will re-energize you as you finish out your school year. Today, our conversation with Coach will center around the new brain discovery that revolutionizes instruction and the whole brain teaching classroom. However, we just found out this is only part one. So we're so excited that we are going to um, just be reinvigorated and informed by um, our great friend, Coach Chris Biffle. So let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, Coach. Thanks so much, ladies. Um as you both can easily imagine, over the last 20, 25 years, I've read lots of stuff on the brain. And I want you both to grin from ear to ear with the realization that I've saved you a lot of time reading stuff that's interesting, but doesn't help us as teachers. There's only been a very few books and a very few ideas that key directly into helping the most distressed kids in classrooms. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about a book by Matthew Lieberman, a UCLA neuroscientist. It was published in 2013. And the name of the book is Social. Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. One of the two or three most influential books I've ever read. So, we're going to explore in part one the nature of this astonishing discovery about the brain. And in part two, we're going to talk about how we can use that discovery to more deeply engage our kids in WBT classrooms. How do you feel about that, Laura? That's exciting, Coach. Um, I love all things brain science. Um, which is what drew me to whole brain teaching in the first place. And so I'm ready. I'm ready to learn. All right. No surprise here, Rhonda. We're going to start with a philosopher since I spent so much time 
teaching philosophy. We'll start with Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle, my dear friend Rondo, is the father of science. He wrote fundamental books on biology and geology and astronomy. And he was the first person to really carefully look at the world and record what he saw. Tell us how delighted you are to hear about Aristotle's genius. Go. Sure. I am super excited to hear about Aristotle, the father of science. I think it's an important part to whole brain teaching in itself. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, Rhonda. Yes. Aristotle said there were four questions that we need to answer in order to understand anything. The first question is, what does the things matter? What is it made out of? Laura, what's the first question? What is the things matter or what is it made out of? Rhonda, the second question is, what is the thing's origin? Where did it come from? Rhonda, second question. So the second question is, what is its origin? Where did it come from? Yes. Laura, the third question is, and this will sound a little fancy, but as a teacher of philosophy, I have some experience in making the fancy intelligible. The third question is, what is the thing's essence? By that, I mean, what does it have in common with all other hmm. things? What is the thing's essence? Go. Or a third so, question. Yeah. So the third question is, what is the thing's essence or what does it have in common with other things? Now, Rhonda, you get the fourth question, which is the most important of all. What is the thing's purpose? What does it do better than any other thing? What's a thing's for? Rhonda, fourth question. Okay, so the fourth question is, what does it do for other things? Like, what is its purpose? What is its purpose? All right. Now, Laura, let's talk about a hammer. So, Laura, I'm going to ask you the easy questions. We'll save the nearly impossible questions for our dear friend, Rhonda. <laughs> you should, my friends, you should see how the difference between the laugh and smile on Laura's face and the smile on Rhonda's face. It's more like a smirk. I will. All right, Laura, talk about a hammer. What is a hammer's matter? What is it made of? Okay, so... From what I know of a hammer, the handle yeah. is made out of wood and mm -hmm. the the top part, the actual hammer part is mm -hmm. some sort of metal, like maybe iron. Sure. So far, so good. Okay. Ron is looking nervous. Yes. Now, <laughs> As I look at the next question. <laughs> uh, Laura, where do hammers come from? Uh, I'm not sure who invented the hammer but i do know like people manufacturers that produce it hammer factories right that's the origin of hammers okay now laura you get a little harder question when we say what is the essence of a hammer you and i know that we can have things that are made of wood and made of metal mm -hmm. 
but they're not hammers. Mm -hmm. What is it about the wood and metal of a hammer that it holds in common with all other hammers? Uh, well, they help you to create or build things. No, no, that's purpose. Oh, oh darn. <laughs> Let me help you out. Okay. A hammer's essence, what makes the wood and matter of a hammer a hammer is that it's shaped like a hammer. Okay. If you, if you take some metal and you shape it like the top of a hammer and you take some wood and you shape it like the bottom of a hammer, you've got a hammer. Okay. So a hammer's matter is wood and metal. A hammer's origin is hammer making factory. A hammer, what hammers hold in common with all hammers is the way they're shaped. Okay. Rhonda, I'm going to give you the easy part. Summarize three things about the hammer. Go, girl. Well, we know that the hammer is made out of wood and metal, yep. um, that it comes from a factory. And yep. um, the essence one, I just went blank. Uh, it's shaped like a hammer. It's shaped like a hammer. Yes. Now, Rhonda, mm -hmm. you're a kid. And as a matter of fact, I'm delighted to say this. I just realized it. The first word that Biffy Tootles ever spoke was hammer, 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 hammer. That was my first word. All right. Now, Rhonda, if I knew that a hammer was made of wood and metal, and if I knew somehow it came from hammer-making factories, and if I also knew that it was that I could tell hammers from ping pong paddles, I still am lacking an important piece of information. And that is, what is a hammer for? What's the purpose of a hammer? All right, go ahead, Rhonda. What's the purpose of a hammer? What do we do with hammers? Well, we use it to pound like a nail in or something. That's so it's it. That's it. You don't have to go any further. All right, Laura, explain the four dimensions of a hammer from Aristotle's point of view. Go. Okay. So a hammer is the, the matter that it's made of is wood and metal. Um, the origin is from a hammer making factory of sorts. Um, its essence is that all hammers are shaped the same and its purpose is for driving in a nail. Yeah. All right. So, Laura, you see that asking those four questions help us to understand hammers and automobiles and corn stalks. All right. Now, dear Laura, let's talk about human beings. Laura, what is the matter of human beings? What are human beings made of? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um blood oxygen muscles flesh yeah. cells human stuff yeah ronnie it turns out you get that easy one now <laughs> where do humans come from what are their origin well they come from other people um i mean you could even go biblical and go that route as well yeah all right now laura i'm going to help you out on this one thank you what do humans hold in common with all other humans? I have my students sometimes say shape, but 
But that can't be the case because if a person has been in a terrible accident and lost parts of their body, they're still just as much human as they were before. Sure. Yeah. A traditional philosophical answer is that what makes a human a human is their ability to reason in a certain sort of way. A certain sort of way, we could write lots of books on that. We know that animals can reason, but one of the things that makes humans humans is reasoning. So Laura, mm. what is human matter? What is human origin? And what is it that humans hold in common with all other humans? Okay, so human matter would be like our cells and those things that we all possess, blood, uh, yes. that type that type of matter. Um, origin, people come from other people, people come from biblical, um, the beginning of Adam and Eve. Um, the essence is that we all, what, what I thought of when you said this coach was we all have that reasoning part, that prefrontal, that developed prefrontal cortex. Yes. Now, Rhonda, here's the biggie. What is a human's purpose? What is the purpose of human life? So Rhonda, just as if we would have no understanding of hammers unless we knew what hammers were for, we have no understanding of humans, according to Aristotle, unless we know what humans are for, what their purpose is, what they do, what their function is. And I'm going to help you ladies out. I'm going to give you some purposes proposed by the great philosophers. And then we'll talk about Matthew Lieberman's marvelous new insight. So Laura, according to Plato, our purpose is to think about eternal truths. According to Aristotle, our purpose is to reason about philosophy. According to St. Augustine, our purpose is to repent and love God. According to Jeremy Bentham, 19th century philosopher, you ladies don't have to remember this, but Jeremy Bentham says the purpose of life is seek pleasure and avoid pain. Mm. Friedrich Nietzsche, vastly misunderstood philosopher, says the purpose of life is to have power over yourself. So, ladies, we cannot be effective teachers unless we know the answer to this big question. What's the purpose of human life? What are we training these kids for? Mm -hmm. Matthew Lieberman gives a very simple, profound answer. The purpose of human life, what human brains are designed for above all else, is to connect with others. That's what we do supremely. Now mammals will connect with family, mammals will connect with packs, but human beings at their highest, as we say, live for others, connect with others. Laura, explain how excited you are to think about this human purpose, which we haven't discussed in whole brain teaching. Go, Laura. Yeah, it's very exciting because you've really been talking about this concept of connection 
for over the last year of podcasts that we've done together. So I'm really excited that this is kind of like a human truth about all of us is that our desire to connect with one another. Yes. Now, Rhonda. Yes. Lieberman at UCLA put humans in a brain scan machine and they played a game which he called cyberball. So you're looking at a screen and the doctors tell you these three people on the screen are, it's you and two other people. Watch the screen and when the one of them throws the ball to you, you throw it to the uh, one of the other two. And so you play cyberball, throwing the ball back and forth, throwing the ball back and forth. And the scientists are looking inside your brain to see what's happening when you're connecting with others. Explain cyberball, Rhonda. Okay, so cyberball would be where they're on a screen, is that correct, I yep. guess? And one person would throw the ball to another person, and then that person would throw the ball to the third person. And they're kind of recording your brain to see what activity is going on when you're doing this. Yeah, you're in this big, long tube, and they're looking at your brain. Now, Laura, psychologists are a bunch of sneaky folks. They told you, Laura, that you were playing the game with two other people, but you're not playing the game with two other people. You're in there by yourself. And what happens is they other the two other quote unquote people start throwing the ball to each other. They don't throw the ball to Laura. Mm -hmm. We take a look at your brain and we see what happens when you experience social exclusion. Talk about this fascinating experience, Laura. I see you nodding your head. You're thinking about your kids already. Go ahead. Um, yes. And I'm actually thinking about myself too, because I'm picturing myself in this situation. And I think the reason I can picture myself, even though this is this is something that I that I haven't actually experienced, we I have experienced social isolation. So it I almost had like a like a physical reaction to that, like inside my body, as you were explaining that, because I think we've all felt what it feels like to be socially isolated. Um, and we see those other people playing in front of us and it's like, Hey, what about me? Yeah, that's exactly it. Rhonda, Laura is in, she doesn't know it, but Rhonda and I have set up this experiment and just talking about the experiment gave Laura the feeling of social isolation. Now let's keep going. Unfortunately, I have a long, complex term for the part of the brain involved, and then I'll simplify it. When we're experiencing social exclusion in cyberball, there's an area of the limbic system, our emotional system, that is activated, and it's called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Let's unpack that. Dorsal means top, like a dorsal fin. Anterior means front because your posterior means the back. Cingulate is a, from the Greek word for belt and cortex is a part of the brain. Cortex comes from the Latin root of bark. 
B-A-R-K, the bark of a tree. So the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is the top front part, an area of the brain that's like a belt that's part of the cortex. We will abbreviate it happily as the DAC, the D-A-C-C. Now, one evening, Lieberman and his colleagues were looking at the readouts from the DAC, playing social, experiencing social exclusion and cyberball. A colleague was looking at the readouts from a completely different experiment. What part of the brain registered physical pain? Shockingly, it was the same area of the brain. Mm. This has monumental consequences for teachers, adults, everybody. We have a kid who comes to us who's suffering from social exclusion, like bullying, and we tell them, oh, don't pay attention to them. You're going to go to college one day and, you know, don't let it get to you. We try to talk people out of the pain of social exclusion, which is just as useless as talking them out of the pain of a broken leg. It's the same brain area that registers physical pain and social pain. So Laura, stop trying to talk it away. Laura, explain this astounding recognition of the reality of being left out. Yeah, so this, this DAC, this area of the brain is responsible for not only social pain, but also physical pain. And so we can't just ex excuse or talk away um, this social exclusion that our kids are feeling. We can't just say, oh, you know, you're going to be fine. We can't, we can't just excuse it away because they're feeling some real pain. And Rhonda, if I asked you, when you think back in your life about the most painful experiences, what registers what do you remember? Do you really remember physical pain or do you remember social pain? Which hits home? I mean, I would say the social pain because that's what I mean. I think of most most often is the the hurt that I have felt from other people. I mean, it might be in exclusion, but it might be, you know, being talked about or, you know, things like that. I That's what I think about. I mean, unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of physical pain things, but... At the same time, I mean, you think about giving birth to your children. That was yeah. some physical pain. Yeah. But, you know, you don't even remember that. You just remember that baby you're holding in your arms. So I would definitely say that social exclusion would be what I would think if of. If people could really recall birth pain, we would have a lot fewer people on Earth. That's right. <laughs> Laura, how about you? Social pain or physical pain, what brings it back to you? What activates your DAC? Definitely social pain. And Rhonda, you used my example. That's exactly what I was thinking of. You know, um, there's 
and I don't know, I would love to dig into this more, but somehow I feel like, especially with the pain of childbirth, like those, you have the flood of, um, oh gosh, what do you call them? Any hormones and things that kind of take over. Yeah. That kind of take over. And, and I wonder if that's true with like other physical pain, like when you break your leg or break a foot, I, you know, the adrenaline starts pumping or whatever, but I don't know that I've ever felt the, the hormones or the adrenaline when I've had social pain. Now, here's another astonishing result. We know that medications like Tylenol can reduce physical pain. It turns out that when you have, that when these experimenters gave people Tylenol, it reduced their social pain. It's the same muscle. Tylenol is a way of reducing social pain. How astounding is that to you, Rhonda? Rhonda, I don't want you or anyone start pumping Tylenol and you're blue, but it just tells us that that part of the brain that is a pain. Yeah, that, really, that surprises me. Yeah. I mean, it it's makes sense, story. but it surprises me. Because we think of those two as two very different things. So the great lesson for today is social pain and physical pain are closely related. Now, Laura, this is bizarre, but we love the bizarre. Lieberman and his associates found a bunch of people, 15, 20, who are going through breakups, romantic breakups. They put them in the MRI machine and they showed them photographs of random people. And sometimes they included photographs of the person they were breaking up with. Oh my gosh, as if you needed that. Right. And as soon as they saw the picture of the person they were breaking up with, the DAC responded immediately. It was registering social pain. Heartbreak at UCLA. Talk about it, Laura. That's the that's the word I was thinking of, Coach. So, you know, we talk about how, like, when we have a breakup or something, or we lose a loved one or something like that, how it feels like our heart is broken, right? So... I'm just like, I'm kind of just amazed by all of this right now, the the social, the emotional pain and the physical pain and how closely they're related. This gives us a cue as to why stopping bullying is a number one purpose and instruction because the pain of bullying lasts a lifetime. I'm sure therapists would agree that bullying lasts a lifetime, but far more even more common than bullying is feeling left out, is feeling with like you're without a friend. Another part of the brain discovered by UCLA, they looked at what was going on in the brain when a person eats chocolate, and then they looked at, another, at, at what happens in the brain when a person is involved in an interchange that makes them feel as if Everything was very fair. Fairness and chocolate exercises. Fairness tastes like chocolate. So when kids are reacting in class to saying that's not fair, 
It's like we gave them a rock to suck on. <laughs> All right. Here's the deal. This is part one. We know based on this and based on our root experience as instructors that social connection is vital in a effective classroom. That's why rule number five, make your dear team stronger, is going to be our central rule going forward in this year because making our dear team stronger, acting like an alpha hawk, living for others, builds empathy and it builds social connection, which our kids need in order not just to learn, but to be whole, integrated, harmonized human beings. We say in whole brain teaching that there are three connections we want to make, teacher-student. We make that with super improver. Student-student, student inside themselves. We do that when we help kids with self-control and caring for others and giving away stars. And the third connection is student to student. That's the social connection. And that's the most vital one because teachers tell us over and over again, unless you have kids connected with each other, you don't have learning, you don't have a team. Part two of this is to talk about ways in which we can nourish the social brain, produce more social rewards, and fewer social penalties in a whole brain teaching classroom and give the whole brain teaching equivalent of Tylenol to those painful DACs in kids' brains. Laura, explain how excited you are for part two. Go. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to part two to take everything that you've talked about today and how then can we apply it in our whole brain teaching classrooms? Rhonda, what do you say, girl? You're going to be here for next week? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I just, once again, you've kind of blown my mind with this a little bit. Um, I appreciate you, you know, like researching it and throwing out and simplifying it for us because, I mean, this really, I think of my classroom and people in there and things that went on and how I could have helped them better in this situation. Well, Rhonda, you can still look them up and go door to door and, and <laughs> fix all the problems that elementary school burdened everyone with. <laughs> but I can't wait for next week. We talk about how to maximize social rewards, not physical rewards, how to maximize social rewards, soothe the DAC inside kids' brains, teach them empathy, and deepen their connection with their classmates. But that's it for this time. Well, this has been wonderful. Coach, we say this every week because it's true. This has been such great information, and we know it's going to help so many teachers. Again, we want to encourage our listeners to listen and share all of Coach's amazing podcasts. In addition, you will definitely want a copy of Coach's latest book, Whole Brain Teaching for Challenging Kids, second edition, which you can purchase on Amazon. We have so many resources to help you on your whole brain teaching journey. Check out our website at www.wholebrainteaching.com for information and videos about whole brain teaching. We have a whole brain teaching official store on our Teachers Pay Teachers with free resources. 
And finally, we have Holbrain Teaching Facebook pages. We want you to know we are here for you. And there's a lot of people that have been giving really good advice on these pa- on those pages. So if you have a question, just throw it out there. Yeah, coaches, always we can't thank you enough for all you do for us and so many teachers around the globe. We also want to thank you, our listeners. Please continue to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with all your teacher friends and administrators so we can make our podcast dreams of 200,000 downloads a reality by the end of the 2024 school year. So until next time, and please join us next week for part two. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye.